Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jack, and we're going to get started today after just a few brief disclaimers. First of all, the show might offend you. If you're easily offended, please turn the show off and spare me the negative reviews on the podcast store, or the iTunes store, whatever the fuck you call it, uh, because you won't like the show. This is your first and final warning. Second, I use advertisements in this show that I do not own the rights to. They are the creative property of Rockstar Games. That is all. They say living in Los Santos is the equivalent of smoking a pack a day. If that's the case, then I want a choice in the matter. So I chose Redwood. I used to sell my body for drug money on the streets. Now I've cleaned up and have a wife and go to church. And I owe it all to Redwood cigarettes. Sometimes when I get really stressed out, I beat my children with anything I can lay my hands on. Since I tried Redwoods, I find a way to relax 20 or 30 times a day. I know it's bad for me, but what's more important, me or my children? Stress kills millions of people each year and causes divorces, automobile accidents, and even war. When stress is about to get you, get a Redwood. Redwood Cigarettes, proud sponsor of the LS City Marathon, Sounds like you got a nasty cough. Yeah? No shit. Here, baby. Try this. Soothe? Yeah. Soothe annihilates cough and cold symptoms. Wow. I'm seeing donkeys. <laughs> That's the patented cough-killing concoction of codeine, morphine, and alcohol. Your cold will be history. How's your cold now? Who the hell are you? I'm your wife, fool. Soothe kills a cough fast. And for the kid's chesty cough, it's Soothe Junior, the medication that comes in a fun, animal-shaped container kids will love. Hey, look at me. I'm binging on medication just like Dad. Ugh. Oh, my God, he's barely breathing. No, that, that, that's just the, the medicine doing his magic. Thanks to Soothe, his cough is history. With Soothe, you'll forget you had a cough, your name, or where to properly go to the bathroom. Feel better fast with Soothe. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Halloween Special. Today we're going to get started with a story called I'm a Mob Hitman with a Unique Method of Body Disposal by Wound Liquor, an author which I, uh, I think is fantastic. I've been reading a lot of his stories lately, and hopefully you guys like him too. All right, with no more further ado... I'm not going to lie to you, nor will I attempt to justify my heinous actions. I'm a mass murderer, a serial killer of the worst kind. Over a 20-year period, I've been directly or indirectly responsible for upwards of 300 murders. I don't kill for, for a cause or because I get some kind of sick pleasure out of it. Instead, I murder people for money, power, and status. I'll let you decide whether that's better or worse. The majority of my victims are officially recorded as missing, presumed dead. Their bodies have never been found, nor will they. That's close to 300 families who will never know for sure what happened to their people. I'm certainly not proud of what I've done, or for the carnage and misery I've inflicted. Some of the killings will haunt me to my dying day. These are the ones who were largely innocent, guilty of some minor infraction, or lucky enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're the ones I regret most, because those people didn't deserve to die in such a horrific manner. 
On the other side of the coin are the real evil shits, the psychopaths and the sadists, the members of rival gangs who inflicted their own fair share of mayhem and suffering during their time. Those assholes got what was coming to them, and I even took some satisfaction from their deaths. Nevertheless, after all these years and all the murders, they tend to blend into one, a montage of bloody carnage that's becoming a nightmarish blur in my memory. I tend to remember the details rather than the names and the faces. I see those quaking bodies standing or kneeling at the pit's edge, often blindfolded with their hands bound behind their backs. Many will plead or beg for their lives, but it makes no difference. We couldn't let them go even if we wanted to. Sometimes we'll put them out of their misery before they fall, cutting their throat or putting a bullet through the back of their head, but more often than not we'll shove them down into the pit while they're still alive and breathing. Our benefactor prefers his victims that way. The pit isn't as deep as it looks from above, and so usually the victim will survive their fall, although they'll likely break both legs in the process. My partner and I will stand above, looking down into the darkness, watching on as the injured victim squeals out in agony and crawls through the dirt, bones, and shit that covers the bottom of the stinking pit. Next we'll hear the almighty roar reverberating through the connected tunnels and the sound of something huge tearing its way through. No matter how many times I hear that awful roar, I'll never get used to it. It's difficult for, for me to imagine the victim's terror in that moment as the beast charges towards him or her in the darkness. They'll have come expecting to die, but few could have imagined such a horrific final fate. The attack is usually over fairly quickly, a violent blur of viscera, the victim having never stood a chance. As I walk away from the bloody scene, I'll feel some sort of satisfaction that the ritual has been completed and our criminal fraternity will enjoy continued good fortune and victories until the next sacrifice is due. No doubt you're confused and more than a little bit troubled at this point, so let me start at the beginning. I grew up on the wrong side of the track, so to speak, born and raised in one of the poorest and most crime-ridden districts in a city of sin. My father wasn't around and my mother was an addict, so in the absence of any adult supervision or positive role models, I was raised by the street, learning to live by my wits and my fist. By my early teens, I'd built up a reputation as being a tough kid in the neighborhood, but I also had street smarts and was always able to make a quick buck. I operated as a cat burglar, breaking into homes and such, before I graduated to armed robbery. The cops never caught me, but my criminal exploits did gain the attention of the local mafia family. I made the potentially lethal mistake of robbing a liquor store that was paying protection to the mob. The local wise guys weren't happy with me, but my case came to the attention of a rising star in a family called Carl Guzman. Carl was still in his early 20s back then, but already he was notorious, his name known throughout the city's criminal underworld. He carried out his first hit in his teens and was regarded as one of the most ruthless and efficient assassins in the city. Carl's boss was an old, up-and-coming gangster called Angelo, a one-time, low-level trickster and conman who'd risen through the ranks due to a combination of skill, ruthlessness, and sheer force of will. With Carl as his right-hand man, Angelo would ultimately eliminate all his gangland rivals and escape any legal attention to become the most powerful gangster in the city, ruling a vast criminal empire, incorporating drugs, prostitution, illegal gambling, loan sharking, protection rackets, hits for hire, and just about everything in between. But all that lay in the future. Back then, I knew little about Angelo and Carl, other than their reputations for violence. I was a tough kid, 
but when I got called up in front of Carl Guzman for my indiscretions, I'll admit I almost shit myself. I'll never forget that fateful night when I was driven out to an abandoned parking lot close to the docks and brought in front of Carl. He was a handsome and charismatic man, immaculately turned out in an Armani suit, his dark hair slicked back and his short beard perfectly groomed. I remember his dark eyes looking down upon me, intelligent, but also predatory eyes. Carl was charming, but there was always a sinister undertone behind his words, creating the impression that he'd slit your throat without giving it a second thought. I was scared out of my mind that night as I reckoned he would kill me right then and there, but of course, he didn't. Despite my bad behavior, Carl said he was impressed by my criminal aptitude and the stories he'd heard around me about me around the neighborhood. Therefore, he gave me two choices that evening. Either I could accept my punishment for the robbery, which would mean a savage beating with baseball bats breaking my arms and legs in the process, or I could join the family business and become Carl's newest associate. Needless to say, it was an easy decision for me. It was only two months later when I accompanied Carl on my first kidnapping-slash-murder. This was a watershed moment for me, a real crossing-the-Rubicon-type situation. On that night, I sold my soul, and I do mean that in a literal rather than metaphorical sense. On the night of the abduction, I was drinking in O'Reilly's, a tough-as-nails bar on the city's south side run by an ex-gangster who didn't ask too many questions of his patrons. I'd just downed my second whiskey when Carl walked in, his eyes quickly scanning the bar's interior as he sought me out. I could tell from the look on his face that he meant business, and this was no social call. I had a lump in my throat as I welcomed him. Hey boss, what's up? He nodded his head solemnly, his intense eyes narrowing as he, as he replied, Finish your drink, we're working tonight. I knew from his whole demeanor and the tone of his voice that tonight's job was going to be more than your average hijacking or punishment beating. I realized right then and there that Carl wanted me to make my bones, to complete my first kill. I'd done a lot of bad shit up to that point in my life, but I was yet to take a life. The prospect of committing a murder didn't exactly fill me with glee. I was never one of those psycho fucks who gets off on it. Nevertheless, I knew I needed to make my bones in order to rise in the family, and so I was prepared to do so, but I had no clue of what lay before me. We drove to the location on the outskirts of the town in a stolen car. Carl, taking the wheel while I rode shotgun. I carried a stub-nosed 38 revolver. Not much use for an extended gunfight, but handy for close-range executions. Not a word was spoken during the 20-minute journey. Carl remained entirely silent and focused on the drive. And I knew better than to ask questions. Carl would tell me what I needed to do when the time was right. We stopped in an abandoned warehouse in a desolate industrial estate just outside of the city limits. It was a location that I had never visited before, but one which conjured up images of gangland executions and buried bodies. Carl drove up onto a piece of wasteland, parking in the mud and waiting with the engine still running, and the car's headlights illuminating the darkened scene. We sat there in tension-filled silence until I finally couldn't take the suspense any longer. What the hell is this place, Carl? I nervously inquired. Angelo owns the land in the warehouse. It's his place, Carl answered dismissively. I nodded my head, knowing that he hadn't really answered my question, so I decided to push for more information. Why are we waiting here, boss? I thought we had a job to do. This is the fucking job, Carl shouted back angrily. Now shut your damn mouth and stay calm. You'll find out the truth soon enough. I didn't quite know what to make of his cryptic words, but I knew better than to ask any more questions. In any event, it wasn't long before I got my answers. 
A few minutes later, a second vehicle came into view, slowly plowing through the muddy wasteland and pulling up to park about 20 yards from our car. Carl looked out cautiously as the doors of the dark sedan swung open and two tall and bulky men stepped out. A pair of gangland goons dressed in cheap suits, both armed with 9mm pistols tucked in their waistbands. I didn't recognize the men, but Carl clearly did as he opened the car door and stepped out, advancing across the dead grounds as he went to greet the newcomers. One of the gangsters, a dark-skinned and bald-headed man, stepped forward and spoke. Hey boss, sorry we're late. There was traffic on the freeway. You got the package? Carl interjected abruptly. Yeah, man, the gangster confirmed. He's in the trunk. Didn't give us too much trouble. Get him out, Carl ordered. A moment later, I was watching the two gangster men manhandling their victim, dragging him out of the trunk before frog-marching him across the waste ground. The prisoner was dressed in a soiled tracksuit, his hands tied in front of him, and with a black bag over his head, obscuring his vision. He was an average-sized man, but dwarfed by a pair of hefty enforcers who held him. I noted that he hardly resisted his captors, appearing utterly defeated and submissive in his demeanor. Carl walked up to the hooded man, standing only inches from his face as he inspected the victim with a discerning eye. Take the hood off, Carl instructed. It doesn't matter if he sees our faces now. One of the thugs obliged, removing the hood from the victim's head. The face underneath was a sorry one. His nose was broken and his face was covered in dry blood. His eyes were bloodshot and tired. Surprisingly, he didn't seem scared or in a state of panic. Instead, the victim appeared beaten and resigned to his fate. He adjusted his eyes to the glare of the headlights and looked up at my companion. To my surprise, it turned out they knew each other. Guzman, is that you? he muttered through trembling lips. Yeah, it's me, buddy. Sorry we have to meet like this, Carl replied coolly. The condemned man surprised me once again by shrugging his shoulders dismissively. I fucked up, he replied simply. Yeah, you did, Carl confirmed. Is there any way out for me? Any chance of a pass? Carl shook his hand in the ne- his head in the negative. Can't do it, buddy. You know what happens when you steal from Angelo. There's no way back. What about my body? The man interjected. Can you get it back to my family so they can give me a proper burial? Can't do that either, man, Carl replied with a hint of guilt now evident in his voice. It's out of my hands, you know that. But we'll get word to your people. Let them know that you're not coming home. I saw the condemned man's face contort and tears well up in his eyes. He took a deep breath before saying, Fuck it, let's get it over with. Carl took hold of the bound man, dismissing the two thugs while doing so. He watched as they drove off, and then Carl directed us towards the waiting warehouse as we led our victims on a solemn, our victim on a solid death march. It's fair to say I was feeling pretty disturbed at this point. In the years which followed, I became hardened to death and violence, but this was my first killing, and it shocked me how cold Carl was with our soon-to-be victim, and how the man meekly accepted his fate. This almost made things worse for me. But I knew Carl was watching closely and evaluating my performance. My whole future in the criminal underworld hinged on how I carried myself over the next few minutes, and I was determined not to fuck it up. Carl made me hold the condemned man while he unlocked the door, leading us inside the warehouse. The interior of the building was almost entirely bare, albeit illuminated by portable lamps linked up by a generator. In the middle of the concrete floor was a gaping open hole in the ground about 20 by 10 meters across. I was puzzled and more than a little concerned. Initially, I assumed the pit was some sort of a mass grave. That would have been bad enough, but the truth was even worse. We dragged our victim forward, right to the edge of the pit, and I remember his whole body was shaking uncontrollably and he couldn't stand without support. The stench by the pit was pretty horrific, a foul combination of rotting flesh and what smelt like animal waste, 
the same stink you'd get in a zoo. I was uneasy, but also morbidly curious, peering over the edge, but seeing only darkness. You're not going to want to get too close, Carl warned. By this stage, our victim was down on his knees by the pit's edge, muttering a quiet prayer through his trembling lips. I pulled out my piece, preparing to fire, but something stopped me from doing so. Suddenly, I heard a sound emanating from the dark bottom of the pit, faint at first, but quickly growing louder. I jumped when I heard the animalistic growl for the first time, quickly followed by an almighty roar which filled the space. A moment later, what sounded like a huge beast as big as a rhino came storming into the pit, the ground shaking due to its immense size and strength. I couldn't get a good look at the monster, but I could only see a dark shape circling the bottom of the pit. I looked to the quaking victim before me, seeing him whimpering in terror as the stream of urine poured down his trouser leg. What the fuck is down there, I asked, shouting to be heard above the creature's growls. Shoot him and kick the body in, Carl ordered loudly. I shook my head in confusion. I don't understand, I replied. Shoot him in the head, Carl screamed. I raised my revolver, holding the barrel against the back of his head. I paused before firing, not wanting to pull the trigger, but I realized that killing him would be a mercy compared to what was down below. I closed my eyes and fired, feeling the recoil as my victim's head exploded. His limp body fell forwards, dropping over the edge. I heard the poor bastard's corpse hit the bottom with a dull thump, and moments later the beast grabbed hold of him in its mighty jaws, biting down on flesh and bone while producing a sickening crack. I caught a brief glimpse of the monster as it briefly emerged from the shadows, seeing its shark-like eyes and huge mouth filled with razor-sharp teeth. The mere sight of the beast brought a cold chill up my spine, a primal terror unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. A moment later, the beast dragged the corpse back into the shadows and started to devour his flesh in a sickening display. I walked away from the pit in disgust, feeling like I was about to be physically sick. Carl gave me a moment to compose myself before he walked over, slapped me on the back and spoke. You did good, kid. First time's always the hardest. Now let's get the fuck out of here. I don't recall much about our drive back to the city. I guess I was still in a state of shock. My brain was still trying to process the horror of what I had just witnessed. It was some time before I was able to speak, asking Carl the most obvious of questions. What happened back there? I demanded. I'll tell you all I know, but we're going to need a drink, Carl answered. Ten minutes later, we were sitting in our secluded booth in an empty bar, free from the prying eyes and ears of the general public. I ordered a double whiskey and downed it in one. What was that thing, I asked, half not wanting to hear the answer. Carl took a large gulp from his own drink before answering. I'm not exactly sure. It doesn't have a name. All I know is where it comes from. There's a tunnel leading deep into the earth, a passageway to... He paused briefly, carefully considering his next words. Do you believe in the afterlife, kid, in heaven and hell? I shrugged my shoulders, puzzled by the question. I guess so. I've never given it much thought, I answered. Carl nodded, his head before continuing. What about a Faustian bargain? You ever heard of that? I shook my head that I hadn't. It's a fable about a guy who made a deal with the devil, Carl explained. I sneered and laughed dismissively. I don't believe in all that bullshit, I replied. Well, Angelo sure as shit does, and he's not on the side of angels, and how can you deny what you saw tonight? I didn't have an answer. I don't know all the details, Carl continued, but Angelo made his deal with the man downstairs a couple of years back. The deal's simple. Angelo offers up regular sacrifices to the beast below, and in return he gets everything he wants in life. Money and power, no trouble from the law, and all his rivals, dead or in prison. 
the good times keep rolling as long as he delivers the bodies. I shook my head in disbelief, wanting to believe that this was all some kind of a sick joke or type of initiation, but there was no way to explain the beast I'd seen down there. My brain was racing a hundred miles an hour as I tried to make sense of what I had been told. I don't know, Carl, I've done some shady shit in my days. Robbing and shooting people is one thing, but deals with the devil and human sacrifices, that's a whole different level. Carl nodded his head in understanding. I get it, dude. I felt the same, the first time at least. I saw that monster and I learned the truth. But look at it this way. As Angelo grows more powerful, so do we. A few more years and our crew will be running this city. And if the devil's, if the devil goes back on his deal, Angelo will be the one to pay the price. It's a win-win. So what do you say, kid? You want to make it in the big leagues? I know I should have walked away right then and there, but what can I say? I'm not a good guy, and the promise of power and wealth were just too tempting. So I said yes, and my life changed forever. Well, Carl was right, up to a point at least. It did get easier over time, and we carried out a lot of sacrifices in those early years. It was around that time when Angelo went to war with the largest crime family in the city, and the streets ran red with blood. Our boss was ultimately victorious, no doubt due to the deal he'd made with the man downstairs, but it was a long and bloody gangland war, and our hit squad was kept very busy. I can't recall how many men we killed during that gang war. The faces and names tend to blur after a time. We weren't able to sacrifice all of our victims to the beast. Many of them were shot dead on the streets, but when possible, we kidnapped our rivals and brought them to the warehouse. This wasn't always an easy task. Some of the men we took were real tough motherfuckers who fought fiercely. But, almost without exception, our victims would shit themselves when we got them to the pit and they heard the beast's terrifying roar. Now these guys were nasty fucks. Gangsters, drug dealers, pimps, killers for hire. They were the worst of the worst and I really didn't feel bad about serving them up as human sacrifices. These bastards would have happily tortured and murdered us if the tables had been turned. I'd shown mercy to my first victim, shooting him dead before letting his body fall into the pit, but the beast preferred his meals alive, and so we pushed most of our victims down while they were still breathing, hearing the crack of bones when they hit the bottom and relishing in their cries of terror as the beast devoured them. After a while, I feared I was enjoying my job too much, and so I had to remind myself how horrifying this truly was. But those were good years for our crew. Angelo destroyed all his enemies, and took full control of all criminal enterprises throughout the city. The money was pouring in, and we became the most feared and respected men in the neighborhood. Soon, Angelo became untouchable, and the city's counselors, top police commanders, and judges were all in his pocket. Even the honest cops and prosecutors weren't able to build a case, and our boss never spent a day in jail. Yes, those were the good times, and clearly the ritual sacrifices were working, but of course it didn't last. The trouble was that we were too successful when the gang war ended. Angelo no longer had any rivals left to eliminate, but of course the devil and his beast were relentless, and they continued to demand fresh sacrifices. Before long, we began executing men and women for the most minor of infractions or insults, but the crooks were so terrified of Angelo and of us that they didn't dare put a foot out of line, so we had to change tactics once again. That's when we started picking victims at random. They were people who knew that we knew nobody would miss. Homeless, drug addicts, mainly. We found it easier to dope our victims up before throwing them into the pit. I made them more docile as we dragged them to their deaths, tossing those poor bastards over the edge and walking away as the beast ripped them to shreds. 
Carl and I rarely spoke on those nights, but neither of us were happy. I became sickened by my role in the senseless killings, a seemingly never-ending conveyor belt of death and suffering. I tried everything to dull my pain. Drink, drugs, sex, but nothing worked. I just couldn't escape the immense guilt that I carried with me. Carl got bumped up about six months ago, taking on the role of Angelo's number two. I didn't quite know how to feel about the change. Carl and I had worked together for a long time, and we shared a, a terrible secret together. But a part of me was glad to see the back of him. I'd come to loathe the man who'd led me down this bloody path, even though I knew I'd ultimately made my own free choices. But the asshole they sent to replace Carl turned out to be a real piece of shit. His name is Tommy, and Tommy and I... And Tommy grew up in my neighborhood. Being introduced to the criminal underworld from a young age, Tommy was the type of kid who tortured small animals for fun before graduating to do the same thing to human beings. He took a perverse, sadistic pleasure in killing, which had never appealed to Carl and I. We considered the murders an ugly but necessary act, and we tried to act as professional as possible, but Tommy loved killing and was almost giddy every night when we carried out a sacrifice. He would mock our victims, laughing in their faces as they pled for mercy or giving him false hope before delivering the fatal blow. Tommy was also obsessed with the hellish beast, almost to the point of worshipping it. He talked at length about every grisly kill, when all I wanted to do was forget. Working with a psychopath like Tommy made a horrific situation even worse. I knew I wouldn't be able to keep this up for much longer. Everyone has their breaking point, and I reached mine about a week ago. The night of what will be my last murder sacrifice started off the same as my first, as I sat drinking in a dive bar waiting for a call. Tommy rang me soon after midnight saying Angelo wanted us to work tonight. I sighed deeply while downing my whiskey, wandering out onto the windswept street where Tommy picked me up in a dark sedan. I climbed into the passenger seat, noting the cruel smile on Tommy's lips and the suspicious twinkle in his eye. His body language immediately put me on guard. Where's the job? I asked wearily. Asshole's already in the trunk, Tommy replied while laughing sadistically. All ready for his one-way trip to hell. I nodded my head grimly and asked no further questions during our drive out of town. I assumed the man trapped in the trunk was just another nameless victim grabbed off the streets. Little did I know what lay before me on that fateful night. We watched the warehouse. We reached the warehouse shortly before 1 a.m., I got out of the car and shivered from the cold, looking up at the stars above as Tommy opened the trunk to reveal the hooded victim within. The man inside was bound with duct tape, his hands tied in front of him. He wore what looked like an expensive suit, except it was ripped, soiled, and covered in dried blood. At first glance, he looked like a typical kidnapped victim, but something didn't seem right. Get the hell up, asshole, Tommy ordered. The victim complied, shakingly pulling himself out of the trunk and managing to stand up on his own two feet. I didn't understand. What's going on here, Tommy? I whispered in my companion's ear. Why isn't he drugged? We usually doped our prisoners up to make them docile and less able to resist. Tommy replied loudly, making sure that our victim overheard. That would be too easy, man. Angelo wants this bastard to suffer. He's going to know it when the beast eats him alive. Ain't that right, buddy? He punched the hooded man around the back of the head, making him yelp in pain and shock. I didn't like this at all. Tommy was playing games and I wouldn't let it slide. In an instant, I reached out and yanked the hood from our victim's head, and then I recoiled in horror at what I saw. The bloodied and bruised face of the former mentor and brother-in-arms of mine, Carl Guzman. 
I stood there awestruck, looking my friend in the eye, seeing the expression of total defeat and resignation which I had witnessed in many other condemned men over the years. He looked down, seemingly unable to meet my gaze. Carl, what the fuck, man? I, ex I exclaimed. It's all right, buddy. It's my time to go. This ain't on you. I shook my head in disbelief as Tommy pushed Carl forwards, towards the warehouse and his terrible fate. I ran after them, shouting questions in a state of frenzied panic. Carl, I don't get it. How did this happen? I fucked up, man, he replied solemnly, took a shot at the king and missed. Now I'm paying the price. I just couldn't understand. But why, I explained. I exclaimed, why the hell would you do that? Carl suddenly stopped walking, fighting against Tommy's grip to turn and face me. His eyes filled with a fiery intensity. Because that son of a bitch needs to be stopped, that's why. Angelo and his damned deal. What we've done, it's evil. I should have stopped this years ago, but I was weak. Don't make the same mistake. That evil fucker needs to go. Tommy ended Carl's angry tirade by hitting him hard around the head and forcing him to continue his death march. Shut the fuck up, traitor, the goon swore. I should have intervened to stop it, but I guess I was still in a state of shock, not truly believing what was occurring in front of my eyes. But Tommy knew exactly what he was doing as he forced the helpless Carl inside of the warehouse and frog-marched him towards the waiting pit. I followed behind him in a daze, my mind racing as I desperately tried to come to terms with this unexpected turn and considered my next move. We entered the dreaded warehouse, Tommy and Carl marching ahead and me trailing behind. I saw the pit and heard the faint roar of the beast as it tore down the tunnel, greedily anticipating its coming meal. I lost control, grabbing Tommy by the shoulder and pulling him around, while I placed my other hand on the butt of my pistol. What are you doing? Tommy spat angrily, his dark eyes full of fury. We're not doing this, I exclaimed with determination. I was sure we would come to blows, but Carl intervened. It's all right, man, he said calmly, speaking directly to me while maintaining eye contact. It's my time. I have this coming. But Carl, I whimpered, already, already losing my faith in the cause. But nothing. It's over for me. There's no sense in you dying, too. Listen to your friend, Tommy interjected, shooting me a twisted smile as he did so. I was paralyzed, unable to act or intervene as Carl marched towards his terrible fate. I didn't understand it. Carl knew what was down there better than anybody. How could he accept such an awful death so meekly? I looked on as Carl kneeled by the side of the pit, replicating the stance of our first victim all those years before. Meanwhile, the beast came charging into the pit, its dark shadow circling in eager anticipation whilst emitting a low, animalistic growl. It had been a long time since I'd... I'd seen it so excited about a sacrifice, it was almost as if it recognized its soon-to-be victim. I knew what the monster did to living bodies, and so I was determined not to let Carl suffer such a fate. After all, he had been my friend once upon a time. I'll give you a clean death at least, I said grimly as I drew my pistol and held it to his head. I didn't know how my old friend would react, and so, and so was astonished when he turned to speak to me, his eyes filled with a fiery intensity. Listen to me. This evil needs to end. You must finish what I started. Carl didn't get a chance to finish his frantic last words because in that very moment, Tommy kicked him hard in the back, forcing his body over the edge. Adios, asshole. Send us a postcard from hell. Tommy giggled. No, I screamed while lurching forward, but it was already too late. I watched in horror as my friend fell into the darkness, his body hitting the bottom with a heavy thump. Carl was still conscious when he hit the ground. He tried to crawl to safety, but the beast was on him in a flash, trampling his helpless body under its huge hooves, cracking bones as if they were twigs. 
Harl screamed in agony as the beast made a second pass, this time grabbing its victim in its mighty jaws and throwing him across the pit like he were a rag doll. In that moment, I lost it, doing something I've never done before, aiming my pistol and firing down into the pit. Die, you fucker, I screamed between the shots. My gun was empty in just a few short seconds. It was dark and my aim was off, but I still must have hit the beast at least three or four times, but the monster didn't even slow down. The bullets bounced off its hide like its skin was made of steel. I could only look on in abject horror as it continued to toy with Carl's helpless body, seemingly taking pleasure from its suffering. Finally, the horrifying ordeal came to an end as the monster bit through Carl's torso, practically splitting him in two before dragging his shredded remains into the shadows where it proceeded to devour his flesh. I stood by the edge of the open pit, perspiring heavily and with tears in my eyes as I tried to come to terms with Carl's horrific death. Suddenly, my sixth sense spiked as I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand on end. I turned around sharply and saw Tommy approaching from behind, his hand reaching for his gun and his eyes filled with murderous intent. A second later, and he surely would have pushed me into the pit as well, but now Tommy was caught out like a deer in the headlights. I stepped away from the edge and made my knuckles into fists, preparing to fight for my life. Tommy wasn't used to fighting people who defended themselves, and so he hesitated. We glared at each other for a tension-filled minute before I eventually broke the silence. We're done here? I asked coldly. Yeah, Tommy replied after a lengthy pause. We're done. Let's get the fuck out of here. And we left the warehouse behind, trying to ignore the sound of the beast chewing on Carl's bones. I survived by the skin of my teeth that night, but I know my days are numbered. With Carl gone, my loyalty is definitely suspected. Angelo surely knows I'm not his man anymore, but he doesn't know that I'm coming for him. I haven't forgotten Carl's final words. He was right. This evil must be stopped. Tonight, I intend to arm myself to the teeth and go after Angelo. I'm going to kill the fucker, or die trying. It's the only way to end this living hell. I know this one act won't make up for all the evil shit that I've done. It's too late for redemption for me, and I expect to burn for my sins, but that's okay. But goddamn, I'm going to enjoy seeing the look on that bastard's face right before I put a bullet through his fucking skull. And all the better when that vile beast is forced back to hell where it belongs. It's time to go to work. Do you find your daughter's friends attractive, but know they look at you as just a dad? Does the typing pool at work think of you more as a teddy bear than a tiger? Do you whack off in your minivan while listening to teen pop? You know, you'll be dead soon. You've missed out on so much. It's not too late to make a change. At the Midlife Crisis Center, we know you've made a success of yourself. Why are you sharing it with others? Why not enjoy it while you have a chance? What's holding you back? Cowardice. We'll get you to the other side of your despair. We specialize in real estate, divorce attorneys, mistress placement, plastic surgery, hair coloring and replacement, male fur coats, and much more. With a designer clothing store and sports car dealership on site, the Midlife Crisis Center will help you discover life while you still can. Come with your wife, leave with a sports car. While you've made a success of yourself, her chest has gone south. How can you have that trollop on your arm for a second longer? The answer is you can't. Ignore your children. Take yourself seriously. Visit the Midlife Crisis Center today. Until death do us part. Gosh, I remember that day like it was yesterday. Jennifer looked so beautiful. I knew I'd love her forever. And then she was driving along a canyon and her brakes went out. 
Well, I'm moving on now and remarried someone half my age. God, I love banging her. I started my life over with Crimson Executive Spouse Indemnity Services. Life can be uncertain, and you never know when your wife will be tragically taken away. Crimson set me up with a huge life insurance policy on my wife. I can't have her back, but now I have a second home. I was devastated when I found out my wife was cheating on me, and even more so when she fell underneath the train. I was nowhere near at the time, and my phone records proved it. My life changed forever. I was a real mess for hours. Thankfully, the week before, I'd met with Crimson. Thanks to Crimson, I've had a penile augmentation and am much more confident with women. Thank you, Crimson. To have a Crimson Planning for the Future kit faxed to you, just dial 1-866-505-CRIM. Man, that, that last story was, uh, was pretty good. This next one is by the same author, and it's called The Squeeze. The fear has been with me for as long as I can remember. I don't know if I was born scared or whether the fear first came to me during childhood. Nature or nurture? Maybe. Or perhaps it's something deeper and more difficult to comprehend. In a way, it doesn't really matter. The odd thing is how I can't really explain what causes it. What is it that I'm afraid of? Is it failure? Showing weakness? People judging me? Perhaps I just can't stand the thought of letting people down. Of being a disappointment, racked with guilt for the rest of my days. A great leader once said, We have nothing to fear but fear itself. A good philosophy. I wish I could live by it, but unfortunately it's not so simple. And of course, mental health professionals will tell you that fear is a perfectly natural response to stress or danger. The fight, flight, or freeze reflex. I suppose it's imprinted into our DNA. It's how our brain reacts, an instinct that we can't control. But for people like me, the fear, guilt, and self-loathing can become overwhelming. So much so that the depression and anxiety we feel becomes crippling, preventing us from living our lives or functioning at even the most basic level. Over the years, I've suffered from these negative emotions almost constantly. Medication and support helps, and there have been times and even extended periods when I felt content or maybe even happy. But I can never fully get rid of the fear. It's a monkey on my back that I can't shake off. The story I'm going to recount here isn't an easy one to tell. The incident was the worst time of my life, and I count myself very lucky to have survived it. I've experienced acute mental health episodes before, of course, periods when I felt so low I couldn't wash, eat, or get out of bed for days. Nevertheless, I always knew I could get through these dark periods and come out the other side. But what happened to me last year went way beyond anything I'd ever suffered before. It was as if all my worst fears and nightmares came to pass all at once, and I was no longer fighting demons inside of my own head. For those terrifying couple of days, I was stalked and terrorized by a monster that was all too real. Was this beast a physical manifestation of my depression and paranoia, or an actual demon sent from the deaths of hell to torment me? I can't say for sure, but nevertheless, I think it's important that I tell my story, if only to give hope to others facing the same darkness. Because no matter how bad things get, there's always a way back. I was at rock bottom when the beast came for me. My long-term partner had left me following a messy breakup, and I fell into a pit of despair and self-pity. I couldn't function properly, and I missed a lot of work. Eventually, my employer let me go, and with no job to go to, I no longer had a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I was completely isolated by this point, barely leaving the house and not speaking with my friends or family. At the time, for some reason, I felt like everybody had turned against me. This wasn't the case, of course. There were still people who cared about me, but I'd cut them out of my life, refusing to take their calls or respond to their messages. 
Again, it's a hard thing to explain. Part of me feared they would judge me or tell me to stop being weak and get over it, which of course I couldn't do. On the other hand, I rationalized that they were better off without me because I was nothing more than a burden and an embarrassment, and so it would be preferable if I disappeared from their lives altogether. And let me tell you, once you fall into that pit, it's difficult to pull yourself back out again, and the longer it goes on for, the worse it gets. Nothing could make me feel better. None of the crutches or addictions that I'd previously relied on, drugs, alcohol, lust, escapism, it never worked. I spent most of my time in bed, sleeping for 12 to 18 hours a day. Sleep was the only escape I had, the only peace I could find. The world of dreams and memories of better times brought me some respite, but it never lasted. The worst part was waking up. This was when I remembered who I was and all the problems that I had. And then the fear would hit me like a ton of bricks. The pressure I would experience in that harsh moment of reality would be intense. It kind of made me feel like a tube of toothpaste being squeezed ever so tightly. I would lie in bed with the duvet pulled over my head, physically shaking and flinching at every slight noise outside of my bedroom window. I didn't wash, and I barely ate, and anything that did pass my lips wouldn't stay down because my stomach was always twisted in knots. This went on for several days, and my mental state only deteriorated as time went by. Before long, my paranoia kicked in. I'd run out of food and essential supplies, but I couldn't leave the house even to go shopping. I thought that people were out to get me, that they would stare at me in the streets, judging me and talking about me in whispered tones, saying I was disgusting and pathetic. I feared I would be spat upon and physically attacked if I stepped foot outside of my front door. I stopped going online, too, fearing the trolling, abuse, and threats that would inevitably follow as the keyboard warrior sought me out to pile on the hatred. All I wanted to do was hide away under my covers and forget the rest of the world existed, but there was no escape for me. Things took a more sinister turn on day five. That morning, I worked up enough courage to peek through my bedroom curtains, hoping that the sunlight would awaken something inside of me. But I could not see the sun, or anything else for that matter. Instead, there was a low and close mist, so thick that I couldn't even see the far side of the street. It was an odd phenomenon, a bizarre pattern of weather that I hadn't expected to witness. In retrospect, I should have realized there was something unnatural and ominous about the thick and stifling mist, but on that morning, I felt a strange sense of calm. The mist seemed like a cloak, protecting me and sheltering me from the cruel world beyond. For a brief time, I felt just a little bit safer, but of course it didn't last. I slept most of the day, drifting in and out of consciousness, finding brief periods of peace and respite before the inevitable pains of anxiety and self-loathing returned with a vengeance. It was after dusk before I opened my curtains again. The mist hadn't lifted. If anything, it had grown thicker, appearing like a dense fog that would choke out all the light in life if left unchecked. I felt decidedly uneasy when I looked upon that darkened scene. It was different from the morning. I no longer felt safe and protected. Instead, I feared what may be hiding within the fog, using it as a cover to plan an assault upon my safe haven. I wanted to draw the curtains and retreat back to my bed, but for some reason I couldn't remove myself from the window, and so I scanned the shrouded, sh shrouded street, searching for something or some someone or something. But for what, specifically, I couldn't say. After a few minutes, I spotted something moving behind the mist, a dark shadow of immense size shifting slowly but purposefully on the far side of my usually quiet suburban street. I couldn't make out who or what it was, only that it, he was big and lumbering, a menacing figure circling the perimeter, searching for weakness, looking for a way in. 
I found myself frozen in fear, too terrified to avert my gaze or move away from the window. Eventually, the shadowy figure left, melting away into the mist and apparently disappearing as quickly as it had emerged. I wasn't convinced, however. Somehow I realized it was still out there, lurking somewhere just out of sight. It would be back, of this I was certain. Finally, I moved away from the window, drawing the curtains tight. In my panic state, I tried to work out what to do next. I considered calling the police, but couldn't face switching on my phone as I feared what would await me. Imagining a deluge of abusive messages and comments from anonymous online trolls. For reasons I could not explain, the thought of making a phone call and speaking to another human being scared me even more than the shadowy interloper stalking the streets. And besides, what would they tell me? The police would surely think I was crazy and maybe they'd be right. So in the end, I did what I always did, which is nothing. Instead of reaching out for help, I retreated back to my bed and hid my head under the covers, seeking solace in the world of my dreams. I don't know what time I awoke, I think it was the next morning, but it could have been the afternoon. To be honest, I no longer had much of a concept of time. The first thing I became aware of was the smoke in my room, or at least I initially assumed it was smoke. I found I could not breathe because the air was so dense and stifling. I thought my house was on fire, but I could see no flames. Coughing and spluttering as I sat up in bed, I struggled to adjust my eyes to my changed environment. In a panic, I made my way to the window and drew back the curtains. The fog was all-encompassing now, so dense that I couldn't see two feet in front of me. I soon realized that the mist had entered my bedroom, somehow permeating through my double-glazed windows and solid brick walls. I covered my mouth and nose with my hand, coughing as I struggled to breathe. I retched, feeling like I was going to be sick, but there was nothing inside my stomach to bring up. I couldn't believe this was happening. This had been my safe haven, my retreat from the cruelty of the outside world, but no more. Whatever this was, it had broken through. The mist was choking me, squeezing me to death within my last refuge. My whole body shook uncontrollably as I retreated, wrapping myself tightly in my duvet, covering my head in the vain hope that the thin material would offer me some level of protection. I shrouded myself in darkness, whimpering softly and telling myself it was going to be okay, that I would get through this. I would have prayed if I'd believed in God, but my bleak, nihilistic worldview had taken that option away from me. I felt myself fading away as the darkness took me and I drifted out of consciousness. I knew it was nighttime when I next awoke. Even after I removed the duvet cover from my head, the world was still cloaked in darkness. It seemed to me like the last rays of light had been sucked out of existence. I shivered and coughed as I emerged from my bed. The fog now filled up my room and I struggled to take every breath. The stink was awful too. I hadn't washed in several days, so it would be fair to say that my sweaty body smelled disgusting by this point, but it wasn't just me. My nostrils were overwhelmed by the foul odor of what smelled like rotting flesh. The vile stench of death was all around me. I couldn't escape it, nor could I identify its origin. I dry heaved into the waste bin, unable to bring anything up, but still feeling the fear and pain as my whole body trembled. I don't know why, but I knew I needed to go to the window to look out and see what was out there, to witness the foul beast that I knew was coming for me. I slowly reached for the curtain with my shaking hands, sheepishly pulling it back to reveal what awaited me behind the thin pane of glass. The fog was as thick as ever, and yet I could clearly see the figures emerging from the mist, walking towards my home with steadfast determination, entirely focused upon their target, which was, of course, me. 
I felt a raw terror pulsating through me as I saw them clearly for the first time, an army of zombie-like ghouls moving with purpose, their pale skin, their bloodshot eyes, and sadistic grin chilling me to the very bone. But these weren't strangers, I knew each and every one of them, schoolyard bullies, ex-lovers, former bosses, and estranged family members. They were all people from my life, people who had hurt me in some way or another. Seeing them all again brought all the painful memories flooding back, but these weren't just people anymore. They'd been transformed into something worse. A wicked army under the control of an entity that was truly evil. I dreaded to think what hellish being could have brought all these troubled souls together. But it wasn't long before the hideous creatures decided to reveal itself. What walked out of the mist was like something from a nightmare. Or perhaps what nightmares originally come from. The monster's horrifying appearance encompassed me my very worst fears, like it was a physical manifestation of my primal terrors or an unnatural monstrosity that could have been stitched together by Dr. Frankenstein himself. It stood tall, at over seven feet in height, walking over two, walking on two sturdy bird-like legs, both adorned with razor-sharp talons. Inexplicably, its body and torso were those of a black bear covered in a thick matted fur with powerful arms extending to form a grotesque embrace, claws ready to rip and tear. I looked up to its hideous face and was left breathless by what I saw. The monster had a protruding snout filled with rows of sharp crocodile-like teeth, and its eyes, those demonic eyes, burning a hellish shade of red. Its sadistic glare cut right through me as if the beast was staring directly into my soul. The zombie-like drones halted their grim death march and cleared a path for their master, allowing the monster to stride forward, its hateful eyes focused entirely upon me. The wicked servants smiled cruelly as their master led the way, and the monster laughed, emitting a sadistic cackle that filled the air, reverberating through the once peaceful street and terrifying me more than anything I'd experienced up to that point. I couldn't bear it anymore, and so I retreated from the window hoping against hope that I could shut these monstrosities away. I told myself they wouldn't be able to enter, that they couldn't infiltrate my home, but of course, I was wrong. I heard a loud banging on my front door that made me jump, and a moment later I trembled in terror as I heard it swing open. It was inside my house, having breached my defenses with virtually no effort expended. This was fight or flight, except I had nowhere to run and no energy to defend myself. Instead, I froze, cowering in the corner, cradling my body in the fetal position. I listened in horror as the beast tore through the corridor of my small bungalow, its talons ripping up the carpet floor, and its deep, bellowing laughter bouncing off the walls. It soon reached my bedroom door, standing on the far side with only the thin wood between me and the vicious beast. There was no lock on the door, and I had no means of defending myself. My brain was running at a hundred miles per hour, and finally I burst into action, jumping up and grabbing my phone from the bedside table, before darting across the room and jumping into my closet, slamming the door shut behind me as I curled up in a ball and cowered in the dark. I knew I was pathetic. The monster would soon find and destroy me. Of course it would. It was like I were a defeated army, constantly retreating before eventually getting cornered and making a pitiful last stand against an undefeatable enemy. I took long, deep breaths, the sweat pouring from my every orifice as my whole body started shaking uncontrollably while I awaited my inevitable fate. The beast kicked open the bedroom door, and I felt the terrible thud as it brutally invaded my sanctuary. Its deep, cruel cackle was deafening now, and the foul stench it brought with it overwhelmed my nostrils. I felt like I was going to pass out. 
Perhaps this would be a fitting end to my miserable existence, I thought. Like a coward, I'd spent my whole life running away from things, hiding from everything unpleasant and frightening. But now the brutal world had come for me, and I had nowhere left to run or hide. The monster was on the other side of the closet now, with its sharp talons clicking against the floor. I could see the huge shadow it cast through the gap underneath the door. It had stopped laughing. Instead, it was breathing heavily as it stood in front of the closet, preparing itself for a final assault. I don't know why it delayed launching its attack. I suppose it was toying with me, prolonging my misery for its own sadistic pleasure. I couldn't stop thinking of its sharp claws and its teeth, and what it would do to me, tearing and ripping me to shreds and feasting upon my flesh. Did I deserve this fate? Had I done anything so bad as to justify being killed in such a savage way? I couldn't say. But I'll admit to being afraid of death. Sure, I had considered suicide before, but obviously I'd never gone through with it. During my worst bouts of depression, I'd often felt like I didn't deserve to live, but now death was staring me in the face and I wanted to survive. My memory of what happened next is something of a blur. I do remember experiencing a burst of adrenaline as I reached for my phone and switched it on with a shaking and sweaty finger. I thought perhaps it wasn't too late to call for help, that maybe I could still be saved. The device came to life, illuminating the inside of the closet with an artificial glow. Simultaneously, the monster emitted a low growl, and I heard it slowly twisting the door handle, preparing to enter. I realized then that there wouldn't be time to call the police or anyone else for that matter. I would be dead meat within a matter of seconds. But then the strangest thing happened. My phone had been off for a few days by this stage as I had intentionally cut myself off from everyone. So seconds after I switched it on, I was inundated by delayed messages and notifications. Needless to say, I wasn't able to read all the text in that tense and deadly moment as I expected to meet a grisly end within mere seconds, but the messages I scanned were non-judgmental or full of spite, quite the opposite. Or they weren't judgmental or full of spite, quite the opposite, in fact. They were from my friends and family, the people who loved and cared about me. And they were genuinely concerned, asking how I was, offering their support, and begging me to pick up the phone. Suddenly it dawned on me. They really did care for me, and they wanted me to fight this, to survive and come back to them. But was it already too late for me? I held my breath as the snarling beast turned the handle. The closet door slowly crept open to expose the horror that stood on the far side. I braced myself for the end, but it didn't come. Instead, the beast shrieked out in pain, rapidly pulling back from the closet door, acting as if it had been shot by a rifle or impaled with, impaled with a spear. I heard the rapid click of talons against the floor as the monster fled, quickly exiting my bedroom and tearing through the cottage before escaping via the front door. I was astonished by this sudden change in fortune and still feared it was some kind of an elaborate trick. Therefore, it was some time before I felt brave enough to leave my hiding place. But when I finally did emerge, I discovered the mist had lifted and my bedroom was as it should be, with the monster long gone. When satisfied, I shakingly stood up on my two feet and made my way to the window, pulling back the curtain and experiencing an immense relief when the morning sunlight touched my skin. For the first time in days, I felt like a human being once again. After savoring that blissful moment, I reached for my phone, knowing that I had a lot of calls to make. After the incident, I received support from my loved ones and sought professional help. The doctors told me the monster wasn't real, that it was a paranoid delusion brought on by my own condition. I didn't argue the point, but I knew this wasn't the case. The damage to my carpet and deep claw marks left on my bedroom floor were proof enough for me. The beast is real, and it's still out there. It feeds on despair and self-loathing and comes for you when you're at your lowest point. 
I have no doubt that it would have killed me if I hadn't switched my phone on at the last minute. The messages of support and love brought hope to my heart, and this hurt the beast, forcing it to retreat. I know it'll be back one day, but right now I'm feeling okay. But depression doesn't have a permanent cure, and I know I'll face new challenges in the future. Suffering reversals and disappointments that will bring on dark days. But I also know I'm strong enough to defeat it, as long as I have good people willing to fight in my corner. So if you're feeling as low as I did, my message to you is this. Keep fighting and remember, you're not on your own, because the beast can only take you if you let it in. And on that sad note, that was a good one, but Jesus Christ, what a bummer. That's enough, uh, that's enough for me tonight. Thank you for tuning back in to another episode of the Anthology of Horror Halloween Special. Be sure to check back tomorrow for another episode, and, uh, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so by going to Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. That's right, Instagram.com slash DukeLandis17. Also, if you haven't done so already, can you please rate the show on the podcast store or on Spotify? It helps the algorithm. And since I'm cranking out content, I'd like more people to hear it. So if you could do your part and share the show with your friends and rate it, doesn't cost any money, just a little bit of time. I would much appreciate it. But anyway, thank you guys for your time. And until next time, stay spooky. <laughs>